Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. Our guest today, Frank Isaac, has written an incredible book that chronicles an amazing event during the domination of Eastern Europe by the Iron Curtain. I'm just going to read from the back cover of the book. On the rainy afternoon of Friday, July 13th, 1956, seven desperate young people boarded a twin-engine DC-3 in the People's Republic of Hungary with the intention of diverting it to West Germany. They had no weapons, no map, and no idea whether the plane carried enough fuel to get them there. They would have to brave the gun of the security officer on board, the wild maneuvers of the pilot, the Russian MiG fighters in hot pursuit, and a harrowing flight over the stormy Alps without even any navigation. And failure at that time would mean certain death. The book is called Freedom Flight, and Mr. Frank Isaac is here to tell us all about it. Welcome, sir. Thank you, man. Glad to be on your show. In 1956, in Hungary, anybody who possessed a weapon and been found by the authorities was most likely faced death sentence. And that's something I think Americans can't even begin to consider, particularly this day and age. The notion, for instance, that you constantly had to alter your communications among the team, meet at different places. Uh, you were constantly sort of under surveillance all throughout the country. If you weren't working for the government, there were still informants on every block. Uh, and you were basically uh, caught in a net, if you will, in Hungary at that time, where it was somewhat difficult, and your book chronicles it very well, just to sort of stay under the radar of the Soviet communist government. Tom, it sounds like if you wrote half of my book, or <laughs> you were a, a co-author of my book, it was so well put, the totality of of fear, of insecurity, the fear of being watched, the fear of being listened to, the fear of the dominant force of everyday life, day and night, the secret listening to Radio Free Europe. And this was the most incredible moment of my life as the, I was ready to shoot my wife if I had to, because I knew that it if it's a wrong country, we're going to be captured, we're going to be extradited, we're going to be tortured, raped, and killed. That's, that, that's the ticket. And then there it was. There was freedom. The stars and stripes. <laughs> A Hungarian airliner stands on a NATO airstrip in West Germany at the end of a daring flight to freedom across the Iron Curtain that was marked by a savage mid-air struggle for control of the plane between seven students who plotted the escape and ten other loyalist passengers and crewmen. Twelve of the plane's 19 occupants went to the hospital on landing, including five of the escape conspirators. The 
weapons were wielded by a red security officer. The defectors were armed only with a dummy pistol at the beginning of the 10-minute brawl, during which the plane dropped from 4,000 feet to 800 before they seized the controls. George Poliak, his head completely bandaged, piloted the plane to the ground, almost fainting from loss of blood. By an amazing coup, he and his daring friends have won freedom, a payoff to a desperate gamble. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mrs. North of South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... It is Thursday, March 10th, 2017, episode 257. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show, it has been a while, and some of you may not have grown up with the Iron Curtain or the Communist Menace in the back of your heads with every TV show and newscast, but in the time of the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain, people were not allowed to leave their own country in the Soviet satellite nations. They were subjugated by a regime that made its citizens live in constant, total fear based on brutal dictatorship. Freedom was a far-off thought for those who lived it, except for a very special few. Freedom Flight is the book by Frank Isaac that chronicles the truly incredible story of seven Hungarians who braved insurmountable odds to commandeer a flight in a desperate attempt at freedom. Go to freedomflightbook.com and get it today. No book I've ever read so clearly details what it was like to live in a communist state and to escape it. Join us for a first-hand account of daring, bravery, and determination on a harrowing journey out of oppression to freedom as we speak with Frank Isaac, author of Freedom Flight, tonight on The Tom Gully Show. For almost two centuries, Americans have enjoyed the valuable privileges of freedom. Now, freedom needs each American to dedicate himself to its preservation. We must not allow our liberties to be endangered by neglect of our duties as citizens. During this year of rededication, join with your fellow Americans in reaffirming the principles on which this country is founded and the safeguarding of those principles. Make it your business to see that federal, state, and local governments are conducted honestly. Help to maintain the good morale of your sons and daughters in the armed forces. Learn the facts about all candidates and issues. Then, vote for the one you believe in. Make the most of every minute on your job. Produce as much as you can, and thus increase our military and economic strength. 
Work for better schools and a better community. Guard your American heritage of freedom. It needs you. Our guest today, Frank Isaac, has written an incredible book that chronicles an amazing event during the domination of Eastern Europe by the Iron Curtain. I'm just going to read from the back cover of the book. On the rainy afternoon of Friday, July 13, 1956, seven desperate young people boarded a twin-engine DC-3 in the People's Republic of Hungary with the intention of diverting it to West Germany. They had no weapons, no map, and no idea whether the plane carried enough fuel to get them there. They would have to brave the gun of the security officer on board, the wild maneuvers of the pilot, the Russian MiG fighters in hot pursuit, and a harrowing flight over the stormy Alps without even any navigation. And failure at that time would mean certain death. The book is called Freedom Flight, and Mr. Frank Isaac is here to tell us all about it. Welcome, sir. Thank you, man. Glad to be on your show. Now, when your book begins, it's at the very start of your plan to take over this domestic air flight, commandeer the plane, and head to West Germany in freedom. And right at the start, right at the very beginning, you run into a big problem uh, at the train station. Can you talk about that? As a matter of fact, into a problem that was that seemed to doom the entire plan, the entire escape. <clears throat> we we knew that the passenger side of the plane, uh, with uh, all the passengers, one of the passenger is a secret policeman, armed and with the very purpose of <clears throat> preventing what we were planning to do. In order to disarm that person without hurting anybody else, it was obvious and we planned it so that we get, as many of us get on the plane in our team, like it, actually it was seven, would have a gun and the other, we just simply uh, tell the passengers to stand up, put their arms up, and we're going to search them and take the weapons away. It's a peaceful takeover of the aircraft. And then knock on the cockpit door and simply tell the pilots where to fly. For that, obviously, we needed the weapons. In 1956, in Hungary, anybody who possessed a weapon and been found by the authorities was most likely faced that sentence. <clears throat> However, our, one of our members, as, as a matter of fact, the person who was planning with me, my co-conspirator, George, used to be in the Hungarian Air Force as a pilot. But he was kicked out of there because he was not joining the Communist Party, so he was not trustable. And long story short, when I met him, but it turned out to be that George still had a friend in the Air Force who was desperate to escape as well. So that person would carry a duffel bag with eight or seven or eight Mauser uh, regulation, army regulation, handgun. We were waiting for him to arrive at a railroad station. 
the train came, nobody else. We didn't have the promised eight weapons and the peaceful takeover of the aircraft. And so at that point, you knew... Well, at that point, you knew we don't have these handguns. So now, if we even choose to do this, we have to get on board and subdue these people, including that security officer, without any weapons at all. Exactly that. That was the exact plan. We had to switch from a relatively safe and executable takeover of an aircraft, especially the fact that not none of this type of thing happened before, so it was a, it was going to be a great surprise to even the secret policemen. But well, no, we don't have a gun. So, we don't have a gun. So what are we going to do? We cannot ab- abandon the plan. It was too far into the advance. Too many bridges were burned, so to speak. So we had to get together and revise change the plan for simply subduing the unknown passengers, including the secret policemen. And that's something I think Americans can't even begin to consider, particularly this day and age. The notion, for instance, that you constantly had to alter your communications among the team, meet at different places. Uh, you were constantly sort of under surveillance all throughout the country. If you weren't working for the government, there were still informants on every block, uh, and you were basically uh, caught in a net, if you will, in Hungary at that time, where it was somewhat difficult, and your book chronicles it very well, just to sort of stay under the radar of the Soviet communist government. Tom, it sounds like if you wrote half of my book or <laughs> you were a, a co-author of my book, it was so well put. The totality of of fear, of un- insecurity, the fear of being watched, the fear of being listened to, the fear of the dominant force of everyday life, day and night, the secret listening to Radio Free Europe just to know what goes on on the world for real because the Hungarian newspapers and broadcast whatever it was, did the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, most of the time we knew, the, we knew, what, we knew what happening in the world by taking the exact opposite that the media said. Well, that, and in that fearful life to replan in the last couple of three days of our still chance to planning and still being in Hungary, it was extremely difficult. And one of the things that every single person on your team had to take into account was what would happen to your families in Hungary after your escape. Well, we had we had a very small chance uh, that we're going to get our escape, going to gain some worldwide publicity, which, if it happens, going to be a some kind of a protection for our family, because uh, 
the, the government is going to weigh the, the balance between having bad, bad publicity and hurting people and basically uh, the bad publicity would work the hurting of people who had nothing to do with nor did they know anything about. And that's why I never told my parents, even though one of the most heart-wrenching moment was when I said goodbye to them at, when I visited back in the last couple of days and telling my parents that I will see you Christmas as usual. Right. No that I'm never going to see them again. Well, and your your book is, the story itself is amazing, just the events that happen, but the way that it's written is done in such a masterful fashion. Uh, you came from a family that actually had put themselves at risk. Uh, there's a wonderful story of your father taking in two Jewish refugees during the Second World War. And, of course, you did have... Uh, one gun, uh, but it was not exactly state of the art. Correct? That, that's that's uh, understated. <laughs> uh, in, back in 1945, when the war ended, <clears throat> we knew that weapons are of his of that of history. So, as we had a an army regulation gun, the Mosley eight millimeter. We buried that in the ground, just just nowhere to put. Uh, there was no garbage collection system or anything like that. So we decided to, to uh, bury, bury it in the ground. <clears throat> and that was my slim hope that if I can unearth it and if I have enough bullets in it, at least we have one gun, if no other purpose, then maybe... Profit, even if the gun is not working, but if it was a real gun and pointing at people, they are going to give up their weapon, or he is going to give up his weapon. Well, and and I'm sorry. Go ahead. And it turned out to be that I found the gun, but even it was rusty. It was uh, non-operational. Took me a half a day to clean it, make it workable, but then there was only two bullets left in the magazine, and they were rusty too. Right. Are they going? To, are they going to be fireable? Could they be fired? Couldn't they be fired? No way to test it. Right, and then, and they'd been buried in the ground for eleven years as well. So yes, exactly. So here we go with one gun. And I, uh, to hide it, I cut the shape of a gun out of a very thick book that I found where I had at home and hid the gun inside of a book that was innocent-looking book if you, unless you opened it. Yes, unless you opened it. So your team gathers uh, near where you're going to have to take off from, and you wait the three days or so and kind of recalibrate your plan, you eventually get on the plane, which was nerve-wracking as well because you didn't know 
if you know you knew you once you got on the plane you wouldn't be able to talk to each other at all to avoid looking like you were in a group or colluding with each other while on the plane uh you yourself describe very well in your book the whole time you're wondering maybe someone in your group could be an informer uh and you had timed your plan out by a countdown and had to scatter your group amongst the plane and at a specific time with just only one member of your team had a watch at a specific time just by all counting in your heads you had to each hopefully be seated in the plane in such a fashion that you could knock out, render unconscious two people each. And at the time you thought deal with this armed officer who is, as you say, in plain clothes and disguised, and then overpower the flight crew so that your friend George could fly the aircraft. That's exactly right. (laughs) The plan was, uh, designed now to render the agent, uh, immobilize the agent. And for that, there was no other way to do it than knock the passengers out, especially those who we may suspect for some signs that he give away of being one or more or less. We could figure that certainly some that were not going to be like a woman. It's very, if there was going to be a woman amongst the unknown passengers, communists didn't trust women to be capable of doing things that men are capable to do. So pretty obvious that if it was a woman amongst the passengers, she's not going to be hurt or we're not going to, knock her out because it's unlikely that she's one. <clears throat> but that still left, we didn't know how many other passengers. All we knew, we were 17 passenger seats on the plane, and we are occupying seven of it, which unfortunately turned out to be that we couldn't do it by the seating plan that we designed, because we were not the first one to get on, the, on board on the plane. And second, they were interrupting the boarding of the plane by dumping some cargo uh, on the floor of the plane. And then the remaining passengers, including myself, got on and took the seat, whatever seat was available, which wasn't the seat that we designed in our seating plan, which we very elaborately, very... uh, scientifically designed it was out the window well and you had two two or three seconds you had allowed yourself to render two people unconscious i know that you and at least two other members of your party and we need to point out that one of the members was a, a woman your wife uh but two other members and yourself were boxers so they obviously had some training in this regard but two or three seconds to knock out two people, uh, you with your your uh, karate background maybe uh, could do that. But wow, that is uh, not much time. <laughs> not in the movies. <laughs> not in the movies. Well, well, this should be a movie. So the countdown takes place and you spring into action 
And, you know, even before the, the pilots are kind of aware of what's going on, you do this wondering which of these people is the security officer and um, uh, just a melee of the highest order breaks out. Indeed, highest order in the sense that so many, so many yelling, screaming, not three seconds, but 30 seconds, and it apparently alerted the crew. Somebody opened the cockpit door, looked out, saw the melee, saw the uh, fighting, defending themselves, passenger, without pounding them on the head, and shut the door, and the plane went into the first nosedive. We were at 8,000 or so altitude, went down to half of that, to 4,000 probably, and then stopped and stalled and started to climb. We were flying around like no gravitational force in the world anymore, up and down, grew up to the ceiling, knocked down to the floor, regardless whether passengers, whether uh, our team or the unknown passengers. Now everybody was flying up and down uncontrollably. Uh, cargo, which was not secured on the floor of the uh, aisle, started to get airborne and flew with us, hitting people on the head, knocking us over, knocking them over. And the seats seat were coming to lose. The floor started to uh, break up. <clears throat> the door to the outside, the latch broke off, and the door started to flop against the body. And the plane again into a nosedive, into a stall, into a climb. According to what finally was recounted, we were recalling four times up and down. Eventually, we were 200 feet from the ground. Then another thing happened that we were capable to take over the plane. I'll go into in a minute. But... Uh, the plane was ready to crash land, still way in Hungarian territory on the, on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. Well, you you are a, you were a journalist at the time yourself, and your eye for detail and the way that you tell the story, particularly during this portion, 30 seconds is a long time for people to be into a struggle. It doesn't sound like that long of a time, but it really is a very, very long time to be seeing members of your team and their individual skirmishes. And you talk about the aluminum flooring coming up off out of the floor. And so now there's not even a really great place to stand. Cargo is everywhere. And the incident that sort of happens that begins to change things is when that as you mentioned cockpit door opens someone looks out and and sees what's going on at that point when everyone is somewhat subdued and of course uh, the gun that you had brought even though you were wondering will this shoot just the sight of a gun in a communist state like that, where people did not have firearms, 
uh, allowed you to gain somewhat of, of control over the passengers. And then the task begins to be, how do we get into the cockpit? And at this time, you know, things are happening so fast, you don't even necessarily know that one of these passengers still isn't the security officer. Yes, all the knocking out of people was fully in vain, totally in vain. Um, the, the, the door was locked. Apparently, the crew noticed what's going on and went into emergency procedures, which was bouncing the plane, so making people in the passenger cabin totally uh, unstable, and that uh, they accomplished that. But also, George, who was to go to Firefly, or the plane once we had succeeded of taking over, was at the door of the cockpit and tried to open it from the outside. Of course, it wasn't possible to open. He had a knife that he started to tear the fortunately still plywood door. And I say still plywood door because there were six airplanes in the possession of the Hungarian commercial airline. Mm -hmm. Five of them already had uh, aluminum door. This one, the last one, Still was it still wasn't being converted into aluminum door. It was plywood. Consequently, the plywood being able, George was able to rip the plywood apart using his knife, and uh, you can see on the picture that the two um, uh, arm of the opening device is now in his uh, his ability to open. He opens the door steps into the cockpit, <clears throat> four crew members, pilot, captain, the co-pilot, an engineer, and, uh, and the mechanic, uh, I mean, a radio man. There was five. The fifth one was the secret policeman, the agent with a gun in his hand pointing into the into the center of George's face. Yeah, I mean, just to, he, he expects to see four people in there. He breaks in, there's five. Apparently, this particular, I believe he was a lieutenant, because the flights were so um, uneventful, for the most part, had begun to enjoy riding along with the flight crew. And uh, for that reason, uh, again, a little bit of serendipity, uh, unexpected occurrence in your plan. Uh, there, there wasn't anyone to subdue you or to, to cause you any problems in the main cabin. But now, at the crucial moment when you want to really take over the plane, here's this guy with, I believe it was a PPK, a Walter PPK, pointing it directly at him. And George, wow, what a character he was, uh, springs into action. Yeah, he had no fear. George was the most fearless man I ever met in my life, and I met a lot of people. But uh, here he is. What happened? Again, so he points the pistol at George and pulled the trigger, and nothing happens. 
the plane is into another nosedive. The, the agent falls on his back. George falls on top of him, and the battle for the gun begins. Uh, George is struggling to bring the gun to the uh, take the gun away from the agent. The uh, engineer and the radio man started to hit and kick and pounding George's head with everything they could have their hands done. And George is fighting for the gun, fighting the secret police policeman. It was unbelievable. George had 36 stitches put into his head uh, after we went to landed in a German Germany in, in a German hospital the same day. 36 stitches. Uh, well, you were even it, wiping blood out of his eyes eventually. Flowing eventually on his face when I finally got to the cockpit to help him. <clears throat> he subdued the secret of the agent. He tore the gun away from his hand, even breaking his finger as he did. Realized in all these the situation, and he has kept pounded on the head, and he was cool enough to realize that the gun was jammed and how it was jammed. The secret policeman was not, when he was into action, he didn't remember whether he loaded his gun or not, and he reloaded his gun. The bullet that was in the chamber did not, wasn't caught by the defense, I mean, the, the design mechanism to throw the bullet out and bring up a new one from the chamber. So he brought up the new one in the chamber, but that was stuck about 45 degrees instead of in the chamber. And when, the, when the, 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 he pulled the trigger and the firing pin hit, not the bullet end, but the bullet side, side. and that was the, almost one out of a million times that such a jam occurs. Yeah. Oh boy! Oh, and so now your team has suffered injuries. Uh, I believe Charlie had his leg broken when the the flight crew broke uh, jumped on him. George is bleeding profusely through the head. Your wife has been injured, but now he's in the cockpit, and you have the the eventually get the the main cabin. I mean, sorry, the uh, cockpit under control, and the original pilot is sitting next to him and basically because you had really no navigation you are following geography you're following what you can see visually on the ground and you see what you believe to be the danube river which is the major major river that flows through that part of the world and begin to follow it with really no certainty due to all that's happened exactly where you're at. That's correct. Our main guidance was the Danube River. Well, we followed it for a while, maybe uh, no more than uh, 30 miles or so, when the clouds started to come in. The clouds came in from the west, from more or less toward the southwest, heading toward 
toward us and it got denser and denser. Pretty soon the Danube disappeared and one only thinks we saw the peaks of the Austrian Alps. And pretty soon we have not even seen that anymore. And eventually we didn't see the wingtips. That's just the props cutting the heavy duty clouding. Wow. Then the storm came, the thunderstorm. Lightnings are all over. The, the darks, the clouds were darks. You couldn't see the wingtips. The Alps were, as far as we knew from our geographic lessons in school, that the Alps were 10 to 12,000 feet in Austria. We are at that altitude because we couldn't go any higher. The door could not be closed to the outside. It was secured by a belt that I took off my pants and secured the door so it won't flop against the fuselage. But at the same time, we couldn't go any higher than 10,000, 12,000 feet because of the, the compression of the cabin could not be accomplished. So there we are flying in between the mountain peaks. Wow. Um, so, now, well, at some point, the pilot that was originally in there, of course, he was fighting you till you took it over. But now that now that you've got control of the cockpit, he kind of realizes he has to cooperate because he's on the plane and so are the passengers. So for his safety and the safety of the passengers, he's sort of working with you, you know, not maybe as earnestly as he would normally, but he's kind of in a situation where he's, he's got to be complicit in helping the plane navigate to some degree. For the, in the interest of his own safety, the passenger's safety, he was very cooperative, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, but, but underneath, he kind of suggested to George, who was now flying the plane, that uh, veer slightly to the right, which is north, apparently knowing that Austria and Czechoslovakia is part is borders as neighbors on the south and north side of where we were. So anything going more north might end up end us up in still Czechoslovakia or East Germany. And uh, that was his underlying hope or thought that we're going to end up in one of those two countries which would be immediate extradition of ours and of course, they were going to be heroes by the communists. Well, we were about an hour and a half or close to that into the flight when the captain says to George, we got 10 minutes left. And that meant fuel. Yes, yes. And, you, and just so that people know, at the time, Austria had signed sort of a neutral agreement with the Soviet Union and it was only two years old, so in order to stay in their good graces, there was a, a, at least a reasonable chance that Austria would send you back to Hungary, which meant certain death. Czechoslovakia meant certain death. Certainly East Germany meant the same thing. 
So really, the only place you can land, and you know, is a NATO country to be safe and to get the freedom, and uh, you know, escape the communist regime, was West Germany. And that point, it was ten minutes away. If it was away, it was there, but we were only ten minutes to stay in the air. And uh, and the the uh, the other thing that people there's so many fascinating and just exciting uh, details of this story is that the uh, the MiGs the Russian aircraft had been alerted to your your attempt. Yes, we understood later on in the research of my writing the book that there were two MiGs 17s, the most advanced Soviet jets at the time were alerted to the nearby airport in our flight pattern and they were uh, by some incredible coincidences were delayed to take off because of uh, communication between the Air Force Base and the Soviet Ambassador uh, Andropov, Yuri Andropov who was later became the head of the Soviet Union was delayed for some other political reason that is too complicated but incredible to explain it at this point. Uh, there we are, 10 minutes left, total darkness. We are at 8,000 feet and we got to get down. And so then the unexpected, the just almost miraculously, uh, the, the story is wonderful because, the, you know, at certain points, things that you didn't anticipate happened to you that a lot of people might have thought would have wrecked your plans, but because of your determination, they didn't. And then at other points, just outrageously good fortune uh, fell your way. Uh, good fortunes. If they didn't happen, if one of them didn't happen, I would not be talking to you right now. Right. The incredible coincidences one following another, <clears throat> and they are laced together by the power of God, probably the only explanation I can have, because when we broke out of the clouds at 800 or so feet, what was in front of us? A runway. I mean, you, you, you go in. You're going through 10 minutes of incredible fear which moment you're going to hit the mountainside and then you break out of the clouds and there is a runway. No, no airplanes, no hangars, no nothing, just uh, not even a uh, wind sack, just the runway, beautiful long runway. The engine is sputtering already, the fuel is out. In a runway that kind of almost didn't have a reason to be there yet, as you mentioned, it was it was being built, it was under construction, but right. it, it was just uh, you know the the very only thing that was there was the runway. And that's all we needed. That's all we needed, a runway, and there it was. The only question was, which country are we? At? <laughs> it's so, such a great story because every step of the way, of course, coming from the situation you were in with the fear and the paranoia and everything, now 
you've survived the flight, which is a miracle on its own. And you still have this element of suspense of where are we? So you're the, the you're the, you're the first one off the plane. The fear is so heavy that you can actually touch it. You can actually feel it. You can you you are almost like a different state of mind. Now what's happening? Not nobody around. Not even a soul. We don't see anybody. Uh, eventually, uh, we unloading the plane, sitting around the tarmac. And there is a, a couple of people on the roads on the side of the far side of the runway, and there's a forest there, and two people. We see one of them pushing a bicycle, the other one carrying a basket. So I was probably the only one amongst our team who could speak. German as well as was, had, had unbroken bones to walk over to these people to find out where we are. But I was so much under, under my fear complex that I could not simply say which country are we at, even though I spoke German. I tried to avoid the direct question in case if it was East Germany or Czechoslovakia then I don't know why, just the fear suppressed everything else. So eventually I could not find out what country are yet. I went back to the group and uh, sit down with them and tell them that I don't know where they are. Which by the time there was a vehicle showing up on the long end, the other end of the runway, heading toward us. And this was the most incredible moment of my life as the, I was ready to shoot my wife if I had to because I knew that if, go, if it's the wrong country, we're going to be captured, we're going to be extradited, we're going to be tortured, raped, and killed. That's the, that's the ticket. And then we realized that there is probably it is a military vehicle because there was a machine gun mounted on the back. And there was a military vehicle, a jeep, which the Russians used just as well. And then it came closer. They could see that there is a flag on the antenna, but they couldn't see what it what's on the flag. My hand was on the trigger and my soul was praying, God, give me strength to move my index finger just an eight of an inch if I have to. Twice, once for her, once for me. Then the vehicle arrived, turned around, to pull up in the front of the plane. And then there it was. There was freedom. The stars and stripes. Just amazing. Just absolutely amazing. Uh, how long did it 
take you to get, I mean, I know one of the members of the, uh, I believe it was George, it might have been Charlie, grabbed the front wheel and was asked, who are you? Why are you here? And he, he responded, uh, Hungary, freedom. Uh, how long did it take you? What, what happened after that? Did they, you know, take you into NATO facilities by, and question you? Or By the time the, uh, all of the vehicles started to arrive, uh, apparently the driver of this vehicle, a sergeant, uh, radioed enough or made connection, uh, ambulances came. German police came, more army. This was a NATO Air Force base, by the way, under construction. And uh, uh, very soon we were transported into the hospital, separated from the crew, separated from the ones who wanted to stay once we were going to go back and sorting out went emergency treatment. George got his head bended and sewed together. Uh, my wife got crutches. Uh, Charlie got his crutches. Joe Bala had a uh, broken leg. Uh, so we were all in our hospitalized out of, uh, actually out of the 19 people, 17 of us, 17 passengers, including us, were hospitalized for a couple of days. Then the, uh, the U.S. Army representatives showed up, and then we got the asylum from the German government, the political asylum. <clears throat> and the rest of that was by media from the virtually representing the entire world from Japan to Rio de Janeiro to Paris to New York Times to Canada to whoever, everybody was there uh, for to be published in the next day media in the world. Oh yeah, it was splashed across the pages of of all of the major newspapers. This was something that uh, as you said earlier, has never been done, and at the time was just about unthinkable uh, to the world. And uh, the notion that the Soviet Union, which was such a brutal, brutal regime, and had built the Iron Curtain and wasn't letting anyone leave. We, and of course, we we know of uh, Checkpoint Charlie and the Berlin Wall. Uh, this story, uh, especially you know, in the United States, of of you know, seven, they said, students uh, taking these huge risks for just the notion of freedom uh, was was a, a story that captivated the entire world. To me, the day of July 13, Friday, 1956, was my birthday. I consider that that my birthday. Well, your book does something, and for the interest of brevity, I've, I haven't gone into great detail, but your book does something I think that is extremely important, and I think it's very, very unique. Uh, in addition to telling the story of your escape itself, 
But you have a perspective, I think, unlike any other that I've ever read, which is you experienced World War II and, you know, both sides of that conflict, you know, both the, the German side and then the uh, Allied side, even though from the Russian uh, side of it, you went through just horrible atrocities uh, on both sides of that conflict. But then you also experienced that slow march to total totalitarianism on the part of the Soviet Union it is without question the best firsthand personal account I've read of that transition ever anywhere. I've, I've read, you know, books that sort of cover one side of that or the other, but you really, really brilliantly chronicle that slow evolution and the steps during it uh, from, you know, a free nation of Hungary to the German presence to the Soviet presence and then how communism just took step by step by step by step all of the personal freedoms and the development of that fear and terror that they eventually made so prevalent over your lives. Your observation is un unbelievably uh, uh, incredible. This is, this is the real heart of the story, the insidious oppression as it creeps into society and slowly, step by step, divisive, insidious, step by step, brings in eventually the gas chambers. But the, the march through that is so mind-blowing, so, so vicious when it starts out with the promises, the changes, the, the, the slow, uh, slow takeover of and uh, eliminating whatever freedom there is, exchanging it for, uh, for the kind of things that people like to have and not to work for it type. It's, it's uh, underlying my story. The real reason for the escape is the loss of freedom, but it's, it's, you don't notice it. It, it. it comes in sheep clothes, but it's a wolf. And it's, I'm so happy that somebody who is not has not experienced the totalitarian formula of life, like you, did see that message in the book because that's the message in the book. That's why you, that's that's what you're getting out of it. Besides of the, the suspense and the, and the incredible series of blocks and determination, or the underlying story, the message is what 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 counts. And you saw it so beautifully. And no. you I don't think one thing happens without the other. In other words, the, the risk that you took, the stakes that you were playing for, your lives, I don't think that happens without the other part of the book where you, you, you talk about the loss of that freedom and the, the calculated way they went about instilling terror and fear for no reason. 
if if there were reasons for the communists to have done something, you speak out against them. That makes sense. People will quit doing that, as you point out in your book. But if it's totally without reason, it keeps the people subservient and subdued. They, they don't want to take a chance at doing anything at all because none of it seems to make sense. It can happen to anyone at any time. I kind of read your book and I thought to an extent and in a small way, this is the exact opposite of 9-11 because there was the hijacking of a plane in order to strike at freedom and, and yours was the hijacking of a plane to get to freedom. Uh, it, it, was, it was just, uh, uh, I cannot tell you how both uh, inspiring and, and it was masterfully written. I'm a, a writer myself. And uh, other than uh, dating women, no, I have not experienced totalitarian regimes. Um, <laughs> but uh, t- can you tell us how long it took for you to finally make it to the United States after this happened? Because of uh, I was in a slave labor of uranium mines and the uranium issue because of its uh, uh, implications of or how they make the atomic bomb open was of great interest to the uh, Western uh, intelligence agencies. Uh, I was retained, so to speak, by. one of the intelligence services to give information as what what I knew about the uranium mines. And then came the Hungarian Revolution three months later, and uh, we were still in Germany, and I was then hired, so to use the term, by another agency, another intelligence service, to debrief those who might be in the uranium mines and are amongst the escapees of 300,000 escapees who came out of Hungary when the borders were open for a couple of weeks. And so I stayed there doing this job as for over a year. And then in August of 1957, we all immigrated to the United States. Excellent. Now, what are you doing now? Because that's equally amazing. And I might point out, uh, along all the serendipity, the way they even discovered the uranium mines that allowed you to get to the United States quicker, that even was an accident. They discovered it via a plane crash, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But uh, what are you doing now, Mr. Isaac? I am am working on my getting the final uh, uh, amount of money necessary for making it a film. We have some funding already done. We have a development stage of the movie already done. We have uh, located all the sites where we were going to be shooting and we got a, bought a DC tree uh, for uh, shooting. We have a couple of MiG-17s still flying by flying buffs in Hungary. So there's a lot of work being done and we're hopefully going to get enough money. Uh, Half of it we already have to 
do that shooting this summer, and that's my main job. In, in addition to it, I teach yoga, of all things. Uh, my wife and myself designed uh, senior yoga for, for older people, and we have a nonprofit organization that we founded to bring free yoga to seniors. So far, we delivered or we trained teachers and delivered a total of 20,000 free yoga class to deserving seniors. And it's nationwide, actually, it's worldwide. And I pondered it and I was running it uh, as a volunteer for 10 years and it's very successful. And we still teach yoga and uh, we still connected with the nonprofit, although I'm not exactly as close as it is. I'm also a private investigator that still works uh, for certain cases. I'm 85, I have Parkinson's disease, and I'm as, as happy as I can be to be in the United States. Well, is there any truth to the rumor that Brad Pitt will play you in the movie? No. <laughs> no, because it has to be somebody. Uh, we have a commitment from uh, a letter of, a letter of uh, engagement uh, from somebody who is just writing Andrew Garfield with the Hexarich. I have one last, well, the two last questions here. Um, the, uh, you mentioned in your book that you were a soccer player, a pretty good goalkeeper, and that, immediately, that immediately made me wonder, did you ever have the opportunity to see maybe one of the, well, well clearly one of the greatest soccer teams ever to play, and I think probably you can make a case for uh, the Netherlands, but uh, probably the best team never to win the World Cup, which was the Hungarian national team from the period of, say, the late 40s to the mid-50s, the magnificent Magyars. Did you ever get to see them play? Yes, it is. 1954, uh, the World Cup. Oh, boy. Hungary played in the preliminaries, Germany, and beat them 8-3. to three. In the finals, Hungary and Germany, three to two, we lost. Oh, you were up two to zero, and uh, one of the greatest goalkeepers ever. I think uh, Grosic made a very, very uncharacteristic mistake. He he slipped, and uh, yeah. boy, I would have really liked to have seen them play. I've seen film clips of Puskas and uh, the rest of them, but Bozic. Yeah. Roshi. Yeah. Oh. And and he actually I think uh Lev Yashin was a, a tremendous goalkeeper but he actually took a few um uh, a few pages out of uh, the Hungarian goalkeeper's book with the black all black jerseys uh the kit that he wore and uh the ability to play the ball with his feet so well uh outside of the box but i i immediately thought to myself i wonder if mr isaacs ever got to see them play because uh they were 
quite dominant during that period of time. Yeah, I saw the I saw the one that was um, against uh, Sweden, and uh, there was I think it was two to one in the in the, in the Nape Stadium, but uh, not not so called the golden team. Yes, yes. Now, how can people get your book, which I very, very, very highly recommend? Amazon.com. Beautiful. I'll put some links on uh, my own website associated with this interview uh, that people can go directly to that. But I know you are a very busy man, and sir, it has been an absolute pleasure to read your book. I could not put it down. It, it's one of the very best books I've ever, ever read. It, it was uh, the, the story itself, if somebody just told it to you on a street uh, in 10 minutes would be captivating, but it was written with such style and so masterfully. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for writing it, and thank you for spending the time with us today. I enjoyed it so much. I uh, Hopefully somebody, sometime, um, if you are in Dallas, I do some... Uh, business in Dallas, uh, as a matter of fact, it's in raising funds for the movie. We have some meetings coming up. If I'm in Dallas, I would, very, I would be very happy to meet you and shake your hands. Oh, and, the honor would be uh, all mine. I stay in touch with you if you allow me to. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much again, Tom, and uh, we hopefully see one another. We'd like to thank Frank Isaac, author of Freedom Flight, for being with us 85 years young, and he is still a brilliant writer and speaker. Please visit freedomflightbook.com to learn more about the book, which you can also get on Amazon. As usual, the links are available on our site right along with this podcast. So however you get there, get there and buy it now, today, immediately. If you're a history lover, if you just would like to get almost a visceral description of what this existence was like and the conditions that made these seven Hungarians risk it all, life, limb, family, fortune, everything, to get to freedom, Freedom Flight is the book for you. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means, of course, trying to spread our little show here. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully Show, not me, but the show on Facebook too, if the mood strikes you. And of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully Show store, which is still non-functional because I've been lazy and haven't... You know, when I created the store there were all of these products that I put the logo on and we could sell them. Well, 
the people that do all that, they update the products and get rid of some of them. And at a certain point, they got rid of so many of them. It was like almost everything in the store was unpurchasable. So now I have to do it all over again. And it takes a long time because that's it's uh, uh, time consuming. And I have noticed over the course of my life that time consuming things take a lot of time. You know, so anyway, uh, and we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it's free, it is for me. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka 2. Uh, one of these days I'm going to tell the story behind that, uh, you know, because if I get enough followers, we're all going to go to the aces. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I've got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson brings us in with the truth wagon. Go to jjohnsonmusic.com and get all of Jay's stuff. And each night, we take you out with Russell Alexander and the Hitman Blues Band. You go to hitmanbluesband.com. You can learn all about the band. And if you go to hitmanbluesband.net, you can sign up for their um, email list. And they don't do it very often, but what it gets you is nine free blues songs. Nine, you know, and then go buy some because you just got nine free ones. But trust me, that that email list, it you know, maybe, maybe comes out once a month. Maybe, maybe. And sometimes the email contains a way to get another free song. So uh, do all that stuff. Thanks to Russell Alexander and the boys in the band. And... Um, you know, get those free songs because that is how we roll. And we will see you next time. Well, the bug can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat or a coon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies But he don't want you He stays at work too long And you beg him to come home But he don't want to Girl, I'd be so good for you I know you could love me too, but you don't want to. I've got a black book full of numbers of names I'll never call. They only make me think of you and you're a 